Progressive presents The Sounds of the Old World. The year is 2019, and someone is waiting for a table at a restaurant. Thompson, party of four. Thompson, party of four. Thompson, party... Oh, there you are. This has been The Sounds of the Old World. Brought to you by Progressive, where drivers can still switch and save like it's 2019. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. HD Smartcast. You're listening to a Hindustan Times production. Brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hi, this is Manjula Narayan and this is the second part of my conversation with Farooq Dhondi on his translation of the work of the great Persian Sufi poet Rumi. The poetry is kind of divided into three types, um, if I remember correctly. You know, uh, aphoristic verses, transla- translation of uh, uh, Rumi's verses uh, to Shams of Tabriz, stories, yes. um, you know, those three kind of different types of... Yes. So talk about that. Yeah, you know, um, he's, uh, Rumi's work is absolutely vast, right? Mm. Uh, the Masnavi would take you years to read if you read it properly. Then he writes a Divane Shamsuta breeze, and then he writes occasional philosophical verses. So, you you know, selecting from them, one has to see what the general, what the general drift of it is. In the Masnavi, there are hundreds of stories, like parables, like, like Jesus' parables in the New Testament. They are stories which then illustrate a moral. So some of these, are, you know, some of my translations are narrative poems of those stories. You know, okay. the Nats and Suleiman, or <clears throat> the parrot and its owner. And uh, Rumi tells these stories. So some are long narrative poems, uh, which which have a moral at the end. Okay. Then there are, of course, hymns to Opeans to Shamsuta Breeze who was his guru, his master, yes. and his his spiritual awakening. So he sees Shams not as a, not as a gay lover, but he yes, addresses yes. him as though he was his lover. And mm. by lover, he means somebody who has opened the gates of yes, enlightenment, yes. of paradise to him, mm. of, of mm. being one with God. So mm. there, are, there are those very emotional love poems, if you like, to Shams. That's the Mm. second sort of phase. And thirdly, he does make philosophical, aphoristic poems, which could be, you know, in the Rubai, there are four-line verses which Mm. have one philosophical meaning. And that could be through a metaphor or that could be through direct preaching. So there are those sorts of... um, I have separated into three categories. I'm absolutely sure that somebody else looking at the complete work of Rumi would say that there are 75 different categories. You've mm-hmm. only chosen three of them. Okay. Okay. So, you know, yeah. when I'm reading, reading these uh, uh, selections, I'm thinking I can see why uh, why he'd be considered a heretic, you know? And... Um, uh, also, why he's so modern? The question of being a heretic is only because uh, traditional 
juridical Islam, the kind that is followed by Wahhabis, shall we say, uh, yes. has always regarded Sufism as not being part of Islam, as being something, as, as being kufr, as being alien. And so the, it's, it goes right back to uh, Rumi's father's time when Rumi's dad uh, disagreed with the juridical Islamicist philosophers of the Persian court, of, of the court of uh, one of the Persian uh, kingdoms of bulk. And mm. his father left that place because he had disputes with the juridical mm. Islam because he was a Sufi. And of course, yeah. Ruby inherited that Sufism, but then mm. it moved to a higher dimension when he met uh, Shamsul Tabriz. The Sufism he was preaching was again slightly juridical until Shamsul Tabriz said, come and be intoxicated, lose yourself. It's the only way to know God. And of course, mm -hmm. the Wahhabis today um, and the Saudi Arabians and so forth who finance terrorism uh, would, uh, would not uh, in any sense, you know, countenance Sufism as Islam. They say that's heresy, and that's where he gets his. Uh, that's where he gets his reputation for being a heretic. Mm. The Indian subcontinent, right? Mm. Pakistan yeah. to, through to Bangladesh, has mm. been brought into Islam not by um, the influence of Wahhabism, but by Sufis. All you know, all the shrines that we have, you know, mm. uh, Nizamuddin Aulia, Imamuddin. Yeah. You know yeah. what you call him, Sone um, Baba in Pakistan, and um, the, the uh, Shah Jalal in Bangladesh. They were all Sufis, and yeah. they brought Sufi Islam to India, and that's why we still have Sufi shrines and so forth. The Wahhabis wouldn't countenance that. You know, mm -hmm. they wouldn't. They wouldn't like you going to Nizamuddin's shrine in Delhi. That's true. So that's why you say it's an old sort of political intervention in Islam. Uh, that's what so you mentioned that. Uh, that's what Sufism yes. is. It's, it's not Shia and Sunni. It's, it's yeah. Sufi and juridical Islam. And it mm. goes back to the, uh, to the 10th, 11th century. Um, mm. Omar Khayyam was a Sufi, you know. Uh, yeah. That's why. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's why he's not seen as a central preacher of juridical Islam. Huh. Though, though Rumi is a preacher, right? I mean... Rumi is a preacher. I mean, if you say that, um, because all his parables, even the stories, they end in do this or do that or think this or think that, you know, hmm. or hmm. give yourself to non-thinking even. Hmm. Yeah. Now, I don't believe in non-thinking, but there we go. It's a translation. <laughs> when I was looking at it, and then you you mentioned how you know the rose, the pomegranate, and like yes. like we said, the saki. All these have certain uh, you know connotations that I mean, as a subcontinental, when you're like when you hear it in Urdu or Hindi, you yes. automatically know it. Yes, right. Which is kind of lost in English, and I don't know how somebody who's not from an Eastern, well, you know, I don't want to say Eastern culture, but you know, from uh, Iran towards this side would understand this, you know, understand the rose and the, yeah, how do they get it? 
and maybe that's why these misinterpretations or these silly sort of translations occur. Anything? I think you're quite right that, you know, Persian poetry and Urdu poetry as, because Urdu poetry derives from Persian poetry yes. and, of course, from the, the Indian poetical traditions of mm. the Vedic traditions, the Upanishadic traditions, uh, mm. uh, you know, and the Ramayana and the, and the Mahabharata. But uh, all, those, all those poetic traditions have very stock um, metaphors, as you mentioned, the rose and the nightingale and the yew tree and the cypress tree and this and that. And all those things we begin to understand because in our lives in India, we are surrounded by it. You know, yeah. we visit Mughal gardens and we see their patterns, right? Mm. And um, one knows what they mean when they say the rose and the nightingale and this and that. Whereas, uh, and every every country has its own poetic traditions, you know. Mm. Um, yeah. I would say that the American translations of um, of Rumi have departed from the American tradition of poetry itself, because mm. if you look at poems, American poetry from Walt Whitman to mm. Robert Frost. Mm to Robert Lowell, to T.S. Eliot, you'll see that they have very startling images, very startling metaphors. But this stuff that people are writing as translations of Rumi has none of that allure, none of those metaphors. They just make up things as they go and they interpret the Persian poetry's metaphors in their own way. And it's very clumsy. Yeah. Also, I don't know whether they really uh, get uh, the religious aspect, the Islamic aspect of it, which is central to the poetry, isn't it? Um, I, th I think they absolutely do not, right? Even somebody who, uh, and I don't know if one is allowed to mention these, but somebody like Deepak Chopra, yeah, who oh, sells yeah. spirituality as a commodity, even his translations are complete nonsense. He's, he's attempted to translate Rumi, and it's just nonsense, you know. It makes no sense in English. I've quoted some in, in my um, yes, yes, I in my denunciations, that. if you like, in my introduction. But um, I don't think, you know, Rumi doesn't deserve to be treated in that way. Hmm. Do you think? Do you think you know your translation and selection? I mean, what do you think is gonna? Uh, what do you think's the reaction that's going to meet it? You know, what has been? I don't. I don't know. Um, you know, uh, I don't know what reaction I would get from um, an American reader to these, hmm. because people who are addicted to the translations that have been made in um, in, in in America. Uh, they may not want to to read Rumi as as it was in 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 intention. They may want to carry on with the intentions that they have, right? That yeah. love yeah. is about the girl next door. Love is mm -hmm. about somebody who you're longing for at the disco, uh, mm -hmm. and not about God. So I don't know what sort of reception that will receive. <laughs> But I hope that at least in, in India, where it has been published, or, you know, or people who read 
English elsewhere in the world will begin to will begin to see that I've tried, I've attempted the best of my ability to try and get the beauty of Rumi into the verse. The beauty as coupled with the meaning. Yeah. It was uh, the poet, uh, the Russian poet Yevtushenko, who said, um, uh, poet, translations are like lovers. If they are beautiful, they are not faithful. If they are faithful, they are not beautiful. So one has to make a compromise between those two. <laughs> okay. So that was great talking to you. And uh, well, I hope the book does very well. And I really enjoyed reading it. Thank you. That's very sweet of you. Thank you. You're very kind. Okay. Uh, so that that's Farooq Dondi, who's talking to me on Books and Authors about Rumi, a new collection. Great talking to you, Farooq. Thank you, Angela. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And by the way, HD Smartcast has launched its first audiobook called A Spy in China, written by Yamini Pustake Bhale Rao and published by Jagannot Books. It's a topical political thriller based on the ongoing tensions between India and China. Every week from the 10th of July 2020, there's a new chapter for you to listen to. Don't miss it. Log on to www.htsmartcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts and search for A Spy in China. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HT Smartcast. HT Smartcast. I'm Annie Apple and I'm here to invite you to come and listen to my new podcast series, Raising April. It's the most intimate sports related conversations you will hear. Each week, we explore the journeys of some of your favorite NFL players through the eyes of those that know them best. From Joe Burrow, DeAndre Hopkins, Miles Garrett, Ezekiel Elliott, Nick and Joey Boza, just to name a few. With exclusive insights and information, we leave no stone unturned. Subscribe now to Raising a Pro on your favorite podcast app.